You're listening to From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy, a food and culture podcast. I'm Alicia Kennedy, a food writer based in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Every week on Wednesdays, I'll be talking to different people in food and culture about their lives, careers, and how it all fits together and where food comes in. Today, I'm talking to Andrea Hernandez, the oracle behind the newsletter Snackshot, which explores food and beverage trends with humor, broad insight, and gorgeous graphics. Nothing about the conversation went according to plan. I had to reschedule because of Puerto Rico's archipelago-wide blackout, my usual recording software wasn't loading, my laptop and Andrea's AirPods were dying, and we went totally off the prepared script to discuss the limits of tech that doesn't cross borders, having to be self-motivated as independent workers, adaptogens, commodification of culture, and much more. Hi, Andrea. How are you? I'm good. I'm actually doing good. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Rassi. How about you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. I know you've had some power problems lately. You know, I was honestly yesterday, I was like, oh God, if, because yesterday I woke up with no electricity and then at night the power went out too. And I'm like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. I was going to message. I was like, I don't know if tomorrow will be okay. But thank God uh, there's been no issues. Today. Right. <laughs> Not going to jinx myself. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, we rescheduled this because there was a blackout in Puerto Rico. And then there have also been problems in a lot of other places as well. It's interesting because someone messaged me in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon and was like, we're having bad weather. I don't know if the power is going to hold. And I I feel like this is something that that's underestimated and that's not as discussed, I think, because people in New York and L.A. don't have these problems right now, you know. And and so I did want to talk to you about that, about how how do you get your work done with and how do you keep your kind of resolve? Because also as independent writers, as I know, of course, we are self-motivated completely with kind of these unpredictable issues that, that happen. Yeah, it really sucks at times when it's at night. because It's like, well, I don't really have anywhere else to go. My phone has been sort of like what I default to, which is like so funny that you put yourselves in these positions. Like I've literally like learn to do like writing writing on Substack on my phone, which is like the most tedious thing. I wish they would (laughs) like improve upon that experience. But I've also, you know, like while my laptop battery dies, like I'll literally use my phone as a hotspot, like for whatever, like it can last. But yeah, I think it's just so funny because like I talk to a lot of people from literally all over the world. Like I have like people from Sydney and London and all these places. They're always surprised. They're like, wait, like you're in Honduras? And I'm like, yeah. And they're just like so shocked that they can't believe, you know, that, that, you know, someone from an unknown hub could be putting out, you know, like work that's like recognized in their places. So I think to me, it's like, like you, you mentioned something like the, the self like motivation. It's so true. Like I talk to people like constantly, like that there's no hack. Like, yo, like literally you need to get the work done. Nobody else is doing it for us. We don't have a team that we can default to. Like it's on you. So you have to figure out. And I think growing up, my parents taught me that sort of resiliency of like, you have to figure it out. Like there's no backup. So you have to, there's a saying that it's called the law of the wittiest, la ley del mabibo in Spanish, which is like, you just have to figure and be like streetwise and figure out like, okay, this is, this isn't working. Let's try to figure out like which angle to work at whatever. And so 
I think that's my approach to everything. And I, and I, again, like we got no power. Okay, cool. My phone, like there's no, exactly. like, okay, well, you know what? Let me just, I'll nap and see like if something happens. <laughs> like, oh. And especially like growing up in countries where you don't have infrastructures to depend on, like you can't depend on your government. You can't depend on the infrastructures. Like you don't know, like even like growing up in a politically unstable country, like has taught me, like, I can't even rely on them. There being peace, you know, like yeah. there's going to be you know, unsettling things that happen and kind of just have to figure out how to work it out. And also like the emotional toll that these things take on you. Like, yeah. I think I, I addressed it last week. I was like, I feel like I've internalized these things, but the reality is like, it fucks with you. Like, yeah, it's like shit, you know, like I am like not really competing because I don't see myself in like competing with like mass mediums, whatever, because <laughs> I'm like kind of the antithesis of that. But I'm like, yo, like there's so many people with so many resources out there and I have to figure out how to like, like on top of all the shit that I have going on, like, oh fuck, I don't have like electricity. So does that mean that I get to like miss out on like, you know, the public publishing this on time or whatever. And I think it's, it's something that's not really talked about because a lot of the the main publications or people get clout or like, right. it's so funny when people send me like examples of like, oh, look at how these people, these, people are using Substack and like <laughs> growing this on It's like, yo, I don't even have the ability to pay well Substack. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't even know that. Like having Stripe is a privilege in itself. And like, I've been very vocal about like how, you know, it's, it's frustrating. It does take at times like an emotional toll, but it's not like I can be like crying and just sitting yeah. there and be like, oh, look at how unfair life is. Like, no, <laughs> it's like you have to work with what you got. And so, yeah, I mean, that was a long winded answer to your question, but yeah. No, no, but yeah. And how do you deal with because I mean, we'll get to obviously my normal questions and everything. But you know, how do you deal with people as probably assuming you do have a team, right? And people assuming that you have all these resources. It's 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 an interesting space to be in. Because as you said, you can't even paywall your Substack because of their weird national (laughs) borders that they they maintain. Yeah, I don't even get it. I'm like, why the hell do you tie your platform to just one thing? Like it feels like like excluding the majority yeah. of the people who are these are it's it's like a fucking paradox. It's like you're <laughs> supposed to be like an equalizing creator, right. whatever. Right. But it's like, well, you know, it's not really true. But yeah, it's so crazy that at the same time validating. I've literally had people said like, like I thought you were a team of twenty. Like I thought you were an actual like publication. Like yeah. there is no way that you could be doing all of this like as a one person team. Like I've had people tell me like, I can't believe that. I refuse to believe that because <laughs> it's just not possible. And it was the funniest thing that happened to me was at uh, this conference Expo West that I got at three press pass too. So I, and I was going to be a speaker at a panel there. So I, I was there and I was walking and I remember someone coming up to me and like, oh my God, um, you work for Snackshot. What part of Snackshot do you work at? I'm like, I was like, that's so funny. I And I even joked, that's like, you know what? I should have brought like all these different changes, like clothing changes. <laughs> and I should have just been like different people in my, like, I tell you, like when you have like the fire lit up your, yeah. like, under your ass, like you have to wear all these different hats because it's like your default, default mode. And I think to me, it's just been extremely validating that you think, like <laughs> that people think that this is like the work is so, that of a value and that it's got that much quality that people assume that there's more people behind it. But I, at the same time, I want to highlight like just how much respect I have for people who have to 
do everything themselves because they don't have the resources. And also like they have to deal with on top of being under resource, like that they have to deal with like fucking infrastructural problems. Like yeah. to me, those people are like mad respect, like who gives a shit, you know, if you're like in the New York Times, whatever, like no one, like that to me is like, okay, cool. They are a fucking corporation, whatever. But like, I'm more about mad respect to the people who have to like be doing their work on top of all these other things that serve as obstacles. So I don't know. I feel like I love to tell people like, yo, if I could do this with the bare minimum and on top of that, like fucking things like not having electricity, (laughs) what's stopping you from doing it, dude? Like seriously, especially like Americans, it's like just fucking go and do it. And I talk to Gen Z a a lot about that because I'm like, stop letting people tell you that you have to be struggling and working without pay to get yourself somewhere and that that they have to give you permission to make your space in this in this world and and I think that that I have also been able to prove that as someone living outside of a usual hub of where like you know media is a thing and to show people like I need I scratched my way in dude because yeah yeah, it's possible so anyways (laughs) (laughs) but I love it because you know you're such a success story for and like you're saying the there are so many limitations that I think we have to be talking about when we're talking about to use that construction um these new ways of of supposedly equalizing the field because you know substack gives itself a lot of credit we're on substack's platform substack is paying for this podcast to be edited <laughs> but the, substack is using a pay a payment processor that exclusively that isn't available to everyone and this is and you know for me of course like substack has been such a great opportunity for me to make my career like basically and then but at the same time you know i'm aware that because of that i think more people should have access to that around the world to because also considering you're going to be able to make money from currencies that might be valued more highly for whatever reason than than your local currency. And you'll able to be really like, you know, to get your make do something, you know, for yourself in a way that like, that's what this should be about. It shouldn't be about the same people in the same places being able to continue to make money. And I'm not going to lie. I feel like Substack is lending itself to perpetuating that. Yeah. More than the other way around. Mm-hmm. I love your story. I feel like it to me, and I keep saying that, like, I feel like you were also sort of an inspiration of like, whoa, like this person literally breaking through from like the established right. sort of circle jerk of same <laughs> things. It's true. Yeah. And, you know, like, I feel like I love to to be able to see that like happening and that I can see people that I want to sort of emulate sort of the same thing where it's like when I started Snapshot, I remember like I don't want it to be the same. Oh, people are pitching to me and they think that they can slide in and, and, you know, whatever. I'm like, I have actively like remained that with that stance of like, I don't do sponsorships. I don't do advertising because I'm like, how do I break this model? Right. And how do I, even if it's hard, like how do I test it to keep some sort of like well, you know, how does it look like community validating a medium? How does it look like when I'm actually being able to be speak freely without having some sort of conflict of interest or whatever, or feeling that I have to censor myself? And I've had publications come to me and ask me, like, why, why don't you pitch for us? And we're talking like really big ones. I'm not going to say yeah. names, but <laughs> like 
I've literally been like, after they've talked to me through the process of pitching and the editing, I'm like, by the time that you're done with it, that's not me. Yeah. Like you literally chipped away the authenticity from me. So like what it, it's not valuable to me. And right. I have had some sort of, I don't know, like for some reason, like the younger generation really loves to read Snapshot. And I have like literally 17 year olds like coming to me and like college students, whatever. And I have had publications tell me like, we want to we bring you in and we want you to pitch stories, whatever, because we want to see if we can like draw that younger audience in. And I'm like, yo, you can't buy that shit. Like yeah. it has to be like an authentic thing. And if you can't, if you have to continuously be extractive as in like, how do I keep getting more from you without giving in return? You're not going to like make it with this new generation because this new generation is all about more of like, let's level here. Yeah. You know, we call the yeah. bullshit. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's been very interesting to see how like Substack emerged like as a creator thing, but no hate, no disrespect, but all the people, I mean, I subscribe to the emails and all the stuff that I get, it's like, this person was like a New York Times food reporter. And now it's like, oh, the cohort, the food cohort, whatever, or this person is coming from this, like, but it's the same people who already had the platforms in the first place. So, you know, no hate to Substack. Obviously, I'm on that <laughs> platform because, you know, it's, it's easy and convenient for me. Unfortunately, you know, it's obviously had to find loopholes around trying to find ways to monetize it. But yeah, I feel like I would love to see more people, more success stories from people who weren't already in this industry in the first place. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and I it's really interesting to me that that how self-perpetuating those things are. And like you're saying, maybe we're going to see a change in that from the younger generation is, you know, what are you because I love that you're like very in tune with <laughs> with like what people <laughs> want. Obviously, that's your whole job. And also like seeing these patterns and these trends in a way that isn't tacky, like that isn't like it's not like these, you know, press releases I get where it's like this is going to be the flavor of the year because oh McCormick God. says so. But like, you know, you're really like have your your finger on the pulse in a real way. And like how, you know, what are you seeing? Are you seeing that you, you're saying this, that people are, are getting back into maybe wanting to see that kind of like homegrown, authentic, maybe weird, like, and I was thinking about this because I was reading a, an interview with Hilton Ailes, the writer from The New Yorker um, on Dirt, which is another great, a great newsletter. And it was about his Instagram and how it's like very old school in that he'd kind of just post whatever. He doesn't think about the algorithm. Mm -hmm, he posts mm -hmm. kind of any image he wants to long caption, short captions, not thinking of it. And he said, you know, the culture was different at a different time. <clears throat> and when I was growing up, you know, I read magazines to find out about things I didn't know yet. And I feel like now a lot of the cultural tide and the coverage has turned to be about telling people what they already know. And like, you can't <laughs> write about things oh my that god. are in a known quantity. And so how do you approach this? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you Hit it like this, just like yeah. Because <laughs> I, I had this on my mind because Taylor Loren, uh, right. which I also like love the way that she basically beat, beat like made her own beat. She wrote about that. She's like, journalism should not be about telling people like what they already know. It should be about the stories that don't want to get like that people don't want you to know. Yeah. And I was like, that's it, dude. Like that's gonna <laughs> be it. Because I literally wrote, wrote written about this. I'm like, what, yeah. why are we like regurgitating the same shit? I think that's why the appeal of it of like, well, no one's saying this and I appreciate the ability to be able to do so 
because it is important. So like one of the latest issues that I wrote was on how I believe that Expo West and all these fancy food conferences are actually a way of gatekeeping diverse yeah. founders because they're so expensive. And, you know, the majority of them can't like who the fuck can afford $20,000 for exactly like, starting cost of a boot, you know? And so I wrote about this and I just like really let it out. And I was like, dude, no one goes there to see. You cannot go predict what's coming up next there. Why? Because it's fucking gatekeep to like people who already have the means for it. And I, and I wrote about like the title is called This Could Be Your Future because I'm like, our future should look diverse. Yeah. Not the same fucking people who just the ex-CMO of Pepsi went and launched the fucking like snack for like that's not the future. It shouldn't be. And so, you know, I wrote this like really like just heartfelt like my experiences and I was like, no disrespect, you know, but to be honest, like it felt like these conferences are losing their relevancy, whatever, especially amongst younger generation. And one of the reasons why is because they don't see themselves reflected and represented. Just make that. So I wrote about that in every other medium piece with like five trends that I saw at Expo West. Dude, like by the time that people can afford $20,000 worth of a booth, like these companies already have like venture money. They're already in whole booth. Like it's not a fucking trend. Like you can't go and say like, and so I just got, I just got like kind of like pissed. I was like, that's just like you regurgitating the fucking obvious. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I 100% think that you're, you hit the nail on the head right now. It's like the, we've lost the ability, one, to critical thing the ability to stay so like these publications can't stay shit because like yeah. they're so constricted with like ad money whatever mm-hmm. i do love how dirt has used that web new dynamic to improve upon like how do you go about financially like sustaining a media right. like a you know like a media that's different that's not archaic tied to engagement and views and right. whatever so yeah i think what you said is like so fucking important <laughs> i'm glad we brought this up because yeah <laughs> Well, I mean, to to get to Web3, too, because I was I wanted to talk to you about this, because, of course, people are very, you know, make a mockery. I make fun of two <laughs> and, and I'm skeptical, of course. But I there are people like Daisy Alioto from Dirt, like you, who are talking about Web3 in positive terms. And I'm like, I think I'm definitely missing something if smart people oh, are saying no, no, no. this. Okay, but no. I want to hear no. I want to hear from you about what what's going on, basically. Yeah, no, no, no. No, skepticism is necessary in all things, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. And I, and I, when I wrote the piece about it, I was like, we do need necessary, like it does have its necessary criticism. It does. Right. 100%. I'm not your crypto bro about to shill you in some <laughs> fucking like, you know, like scam or whatever. So literally, the, the thing is that you have to see this less about the hype yeah web3 is not mcdonald's putting out like a fucking nft of their magrib like who the fuck wants that right to me web3 is about how does this dynamic improve upon or even better disrupts whatever it's trying to be used for right i'll give you i guess like i will say like the rise of the dow activism like how Mm -hmm. do we take community and add economics into it in a way that's more transparent and it's not tied to rep tape, right? Because like right. you go and try to open a bank account, like all the stuff that you have to give, whatever. So to me, that's that's one reason why this type of organization makes it sense in the first place, right? Then second, I've seen people use this application in a way that's trying to go against, you know, the structures in place that continue right. to prey upon. There's, I'll give you an example, farmers market verse. Yeah. At first, you're like, oh, what the fuck is this? Like, it's like pictures <laughs> of like farmers and whatever. And you think like, oh, just like some sort of like, you know, another JPEG scam, whatever. But the reality is like the 
like a uh, thesis behind this. It's a bunch of small farmers who said, we'll use the capital we make from these NFTs that we're selling. And we have our own treasury. And they take some to like mitigate the cost of uh, like running the organization. And the main idea behind it is to put a battle against big agri- agriculture. Yeah. And so they are using that dynamic to empower themselves economic wise and, you know, really be more of a like, how do okay, we are, we are collective and how do we help each other out? And that it's not also tied to anything that's local or like that's like, you know, because like, you know, it's the Internet. And so, you know, I spent some time in their discord and I really loved it because you can you can tell that there is that intentionality of like help thy neighbor. Right. Right. They have like they choose they, they do voting and they choose like uh, I think each month or I don't know what what the dynamic is now, but they they choose like who do we help? Like whose farm needs help? Who like what organizations that are really trying to help our mission? Like, can we benefit? It's like literally an online like farmer's market and like mm-hmm. they post about like what they're doing or whatever and like to me when i see that i'm like that's the beauty of it right austin robbie one of the founders of dinner dow which is like this dinner club that's web3 he wrote about how dows and co-ops have similarities and what they can learn from each other it's an incredible piece highly recommend it and then even dinner dow which is like a supper club that meets like this sort of dynamic I love the idea of like, dude, we're taking something that's very simple, but we're making it, we're improving upon it. So like they're launching their second season soon. And what it entails is that you buy sort of the membership as an NFT and it comes with, you get assigned a table, a group of people, a group of people, and you get an allocated like amount, like, and you can use that in however you want, whether your group wants to use it all in one fucking fancy restaurant, or you guys want to have like multiple meetups, whatever. That's pretty cool. You know, and you don't have to be worrying about like whose card is going to be used, whatever. It's more about like we we're doing this and we're exploring the concept of what it looks like to use a dynamic to have an experience of communing around food. Right. There's another example, Friends with Benefits, which is like the most well-known crypto community that's been profiled now by the New York Times and all these other publications. They and I'm part of it. Uh, I was graciously donated because <laughs> I obviously could not afford the membership, but the community came together, a couple of people from the community came together and they donated whatever was needed for me to be part of it, which I greatly appreciate it. Uh, and I have experienced uh, their events and stuff. And um, so firsthand. And the latest proposal that they have as a collective is to buy and restore this like Chinatown LA restaurant and they want to convert it to a venue, whatever, but they want to use all the funds uh, or the stuff that they gained from that, uh, not just to use as within the community, but to properly restore something that's uh, like a historical place in downtown LA. Mm-hmm. You know, like those kinds of things, to me, they serve as a, look how what we can do without all the red tape of having to subscribe as an organization. Of, and everything can be traceable through yeah. the blockchain, which is like basically like receipts that can be viewed by everybody that's, that has access to the internet. Yeah. And you know, there's there's another one, um, a, a guy that works in the spirits industry in L.A. who's coming up with a project that is going to help um, the bartender, like bartenders in general, like to be able to like pursue their passion and, and whatever else they're, you know, 
they're wanting to develop and it's going to be like sort of its own fun, but it's going to be tied to a physical like spirits bottle. Oh, wow. I think I 100% agree that there's a lot of skeptics. Like the fact that you are spending half a million dollars on a fucking JPEG of like, <laughs> an animal, like that's ridiculous to me. Like I'm more bullish on the things that are really being disrupted that are like giving me a better hope of we don't have to be like stuck to like, again, Stripe. Right. <laughs> you know, Web3 crypto helps that yeah. in, in so many more ways where it's like the regulation isn't as tight. So, yeah. Yeah. So like, look at Dirt. They're exploring yeah. how to like make a medium that is not dependent on like advertising revenue, whatever that's more pro of whatever the community is wanting. Do I believe it's going to be the solution to everything? No, but I think it's an improvement and an exploration of what it what does it look like when we don't subscribe to archaic structures, right? That we right. know that they're like decaying, right? Yeah. And people think, for example, like that Twitter is the one to blame for our horrible attention <laughs> span and our fear mongering, whatever. No, I studied communications. I can tell you like the history like of 24-7 news. Like it was not about keeping people informed. It was about like how do we share more fucking ads like on TV? Oh, we keep the news going the entire fucking day <laughs> i feel like we just have to be a lot more like conscientious of it's not gonna be like a one day everything solved but i am very in pro of like if this is giving me the ability to see what lies beyond having to succumb to these structures that are yeah. so predatory yeah then fuck it dude what what, what else <laughs> are you gonna like what else can we do you know like exactly and that makes sense. And it's interesting because I think this is a way I'm starting to think about things a little differently, too, where it's like just because the narrative tends to be that one thing is going to solve every problem that we have as as a society doesn't mean that we have to think of it that way, you know, because I was on a panel last week with like a grass-fed beef rancher and a lab meat, Isha Datar from New Harvest and other folks who are working, you know, to try and fix the way people eat meat in the United States, basically. And I, you know, I came away from it thinking, you know, why am I always taking such a hard line about these things when maybe what we do need is to just stop pretending there's a silver bullet for climate change and for our relationship to meet and say, let's use a combination of approaches to solve for this problem. You know, like, let's not just, you know, we don't have to say lab meat is the answer because it's not because of scale, because of still using energy that's fossil fuel intensive, because the maybe people aren't going to want to eat it for all sorts of reasons. And also there it's there's still like un, unethical issues in terms of how they even take cells from the animals. Like they have to yeah. kill calves. And so and then maybe, you know, protein cakes like Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat are part of a solution. And and those stimulate chicken nuggets, maybe they're part of a solution. And maybe grass-fed beef is part of a solution. And maybe, you know, heritage pork and all of these things are part of a solution. Maybe these all work together to get us to a place where we stop killing the planet and, you know, and, and stop overconsuming. I think it's very important, too, to say, why are we also punishing sustainable cultures and cultures who have historically right. worked with using every ingredient in, in the animal, you know, even kosher, which is like right. supposedly like a more ethical way of making sure the animal doesn't suffer. And like, why are we casting upon these people 
And in, in the same way, oh God, you're going to love this. There's a newsletter <laughs> called Gula. There's a newsletter about Gula, which is like a lot of like Latin American writers like that are like chefs and all these like all these different like backgrounds in the food industry and i read an issue where this guy who's a chef is talking about his experience in oaxaca like the mushroom festival and why i'm saying like bringing this up is because he talks about how the mixtecas the culture there they don't call it hallucinogenic they're like this does not cause hallucinogens we don't believe that. We believe that it amplifies your vision. Right. So he talks about like, how how are we so hypocrite with drugs? We don't even understand. Like the relationship to psychedelics in the Mexican culture, Aztec culture, stems, I don't know, like thousands of years. It's literally in the coices, like the, the Aztec coices, which is like basically like hieroglyphics or like mm-hmm. uh, the codes that they used to use. He talks about like, that the, we are trying to frame something that we don't understand with yeah. lack of understanding. And so I think that the same happens with meat, right? Where it's like, I'm, I'm blaming and I'm, I'm like punishing a collective when it's the reality is the meat industry complex is what, like four or five businesses. Mm-hmm. So it's like the same way that the whole carbon footprint came about as an advertising campaign yeah. for Procter & Gamble to sort of put the blame on the consumer and not really focus on the negative externalities of this fucking corporation that owns what hundreds, if not thousands of brands that contribute to that, that I think that dynamic, we don't explore it as much. And I try to bring attention to it just from my background, working in marketing and having gone to school to to study that and study communications and the history of it. And no one's talking about specifically in the U.S., like, how the deregulation of children's advertising in the mid 80s affected millennials and our overconsumption culture. Yeah. No one talks about these things as like the core root. It's more about like, I have to adapt and, you know, buy expensive shit because I'm bettering the planet. And it's like inaccessible <laughs> to the majority of people, you know, like, yeah, you're going to Erewhon and you're feeling good about yourself, but who the hell can fucking buy like a $25 shake, right? Or like yeah. you're going to like McDonald's and you're getting yourself like an impossible or beyond meat. Where, what? So like it's vegan and it's like ethical because like it's no animal harm. But what about the exploitation of the worker? Like does mm-hmm. that make you feel good or is that like do you know? So I feel like like you said like there is no like black or white. It's very much about a gray area. And I think that we're we're losing each other and fighting in trenches when we should be bridging further and further towards like the solution. And so I, yeah. I think what you said is hundred percent where it's at. It's like, it, there's no one like solution for it. Parts of the solution. Yes. But at the same time, I would want for us to start sort of peeling back the bullshit of these yeah. narratives. Of, yeah. Yeah. You know, like, what does it mean that Amazon's plant-based patty is not going to save the world? Like, yeah, you, know, you, you also have to be like very much like skeptical that that's going to be what solves our problem. Yeah. No, absolutely. Well, to start the interview the way I usually do, now that we've talked for like half an hour, but um, <laughs> can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm still in my city, San Pedro Sula, Honduras. I grew up eating bean, rice, plantain, lots of plantain, yeah. the sweet kind more than the other, though. As I grew older, I, I did got a, a nap more for like the salty plantain. But I grew up a lot, very close to my grandmother, um, very close to her and and seeing her cook. 
One of my favorite memories is watching her pick out the beans to big plants and like the little rocks. She would go to the market every Saturday. She would bring us crabs, fishes and stuff. She like make, make like crab soup. Um, she's from Nicaragua originally, but she came after the Civil War and she had a lot of connection with food. She was mm-hmm. she was like the sole provider. She was not really divorced, but like she ended up uh, after the war, like her husband left them her and and my mom and my aunt and so they were in Honduras she was the sole provider so she was basically like the one who did everything so she did all the meals etc she was living with us uh when I was growing up and I loved just sitting it was like kind of like a meditative thing like you're just like sitting there and you're just like picking apart like the little bean and also like uh undoing the kernels of the corn and I loved when she would bring the corn because like I didn't know this but like like maize like has different colors and stuff like I remember yeah. I was like wow you're like you look at all the movies and stuff especially when like you're growing up with like only American channels because like we don't even have you know tv shows of our like of our own and you grow up with like the yellow one like you see that everywhere and I would just be like wow I like the corn's white and purple and like <laughs> all these different like weird mission like mashes of color and so yeah so like like picking up these little things and also like she would bring him to Molino. I don't know how to say it, like a mill. Yeah, yeah. And I remember she's like, that's so fucking cool. Like it would come in a powder and she would also do like, uh, I don't know what it's called, but it's also like a corn-based drink, but the powder is made to use the drink. But she, yeah, so like I grew up a lot seeing the way that she prepared food and just taking a lot of like even how to make the tortillas and stuff like that. And a lot of her even remedies that she grew right. up with, like for cramps, for tummy aches whatever like I don't know I was very much grew up close to that so that's sort of like how I came to be very interested in doing my own things and you know I grew up with a lot a lot of seafood for sure yeah because I'm like my city's like 30 minutes from the coast like we would go to the beach and have fish and to me like it was never because you're you're growing up and I would go to the market too like on Sundays with my mom and she would be like go and I was the shyest person. She'd be like, here's money, go barter with the tortilla lady and make sure like she doesn't charge us more than that. Because, you know, we didn't grow up rich. We're like, right. we were like uh, four kids. My mom was like, you know, always very much like trying to save costs, whatever. And I love that she taught me how to barter when I was like fucking kid. Yeah. And I think that's one of the skills that I appreciate so much from her. But like, I would <laughs> go to the market and like seeing these kids like do tortillas, whatever. And then like, so stacking them here and there's like people with like half an avocado open, like trying to show you on their vegetables and fruits and stuff. And like all the fruits are laid out, newspapers, whatever. That's still here. That's still happening. No, I don't know. I just feel like I was very lucky in a sense, even though, you know, I grew up with a lot of different things in Honduras like that weren't that nice. Yeah. But to be able to experience that sort of connection to people who are making the food that that I'm ingesting, right? That I'm putting into my body. And it's such a like sacred experience that we don't really think about. That's like literally the pillar of our lives, putting food in our bodies. (laughs) Like like, like, this without that like process. And I think that to me, like when I think about whether or not I subscribe to the idea of unison, like I get it. I understand it. It's horrible. It's horrific. The fact that, you know, that the mass industrial complex of this has created this monstrosity. But at the same time, like when I grew up, it was more about you knew the person that was giving you the crabs. Right. And that it was much more sustainable 
But that was obviously when I was growing up. But yeah, I feel like I grew up very much experiencing sort of like an array of flavors, obviously very acidic, citric. Citric has always been like where I where I gravitate towards spice. And yeah, I'm very thankful, you know, like that I was able to like come up about that because I was never a sweets person. I was like, oh right. my God, we have a, a word for it. It's called empalagado when you had too much sweet and you just like feel like super like sick. You're like, well, I can't. And so like, I don't know. I think I was born in the perfect place. I'm like, I have a theory that I used to be an iguana in a past life because I thrive on <laughs> I have to have sun. And so I think I, I, you know, grew up where I was meant to and also gave me a really rounded experience of like what it's like to live in two worlds, especially like as a bilingual person where it's like one language gives you like an access to a different dimension. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. whoa, like as a writer, like I don't consider myself a writer. I consider myself a professional shed poster, but <laughs> like the fact that my voice has a lot more hits a lot more in this language than in you know if I were to speak in Spanish <clears throat> unfortunately right. that's just a dynamic that we live in and I have been very advocated about like why do we do this in the first place as a person living in a country where this language isn't native um but you know it gives you access to see and I think that it has given me this is tying it back to snapshot why I have been able to pick up on stuff. Whereas like U.S. people are very myopic as in like we're centric to ourselves beyond anything else that I'm like, whoa, this is all happening in all these different places. Let's see, you know, like how, if this is playing out in in UK, is this playing out in Australia? Is this playing out in Latin? And then like, that's sort of like how that like seer oracle premonition kind of thing was like, well, just like, it's just paying attention to like to what's happening around you. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess I, you know, I grew up with like an array of, I guess, Latin American, Mesoamerican, I would say, yeah. inspired flavors. Coastal too. Yeah. And so how did you get so into snacks? Where where did the where did the snacks start to come in for you? Yeah, I would say that since I do like I have friends that live in the US, I had been seeing, and again, because I can see sort of like two different sides of it. So like I'm like, wait, like, why is it like ginger is being like made into this all in like solve? And it's like, but you know, like you could just like boil the ginger, right? All you have to do is yeah. like, peel it and put it in water and heat it up. And so, yeah, so I feel like, I don't know, like, I feel like after seeing things like meditation in the can and stuff like that, I just, because of my background, again, marketing, knowing what goes behind building brands that I was just like, I don't think I haven't seen anybody talk about like it feels like we're going through something and I want to know where it's coming from. But at the same time, like I like want to see if it's happening somewhere else. Right. And so I don't know, it just came all about, I remember like doing Twitter threads at first and people like, whoa, I would love to learn more about this. I'm like, shit, I may have landed on something. But yeah, it was, it was more about like getting sort of like, am I being catfished by brands? And if so, like who's writing about this? And so I don't know, I just, I, it started off of that and it, felt like we've entered sort of like a parody state like where it's like right. we have to label water vegan like thank you for letting me know i'm not sucking on bone broth <laughs> happening, right i don't know i just wanted to use sort of that parody and that's where the persona of the snack boy comes to be yeah. which is the erewhon meets the boy persona <laughs> where it's like you know like that person that spends too much time in the beverage aisle like you know spending so much money deciding between like cbd and nootropic or right. thc adaptogen is like bro like you should be like doing the same but in therapy like, <laughs> these are not like all end solutions for your problems 
But so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of just talk about like what I was seeing and, you know, making space for us to talk about what is an adaptogen? You know, what's the idea behind them? Like, is that a novel thing? Like, why is it like being attributed to fucking Gwynnie Goop Peltrow? Right. Instead of like talking about like how, you know, it's been used by so many different cultures for like centuries and thousands of years. And like, why is it that we're like whitewashing all of this thing? And we're not really like trying to like we're not understanding that we're trying to get back to our roots, but we're right. doing it in a way where it's the commodification yeah. of knowledge that's inherently human and that's been used by so many different cultures, you know, across like the history of the world. I don't know. It just felt like the conversation was very much skewing towards like the guinea goops yeah. instead of like. Let's figure out where this is coming from. <laughs> yeah, there's so much. And I found this out because um, when Eater gave me the assignment, I wrote about like wellness drinks a couple of years ago and they they gave me this assignment. It wasn't really my idea, but I saw kind of these new drinks, the new the new like adaptogenic drinks as kind of a commodification of like these older techniques, like you're saying, where it's like, you know, we used to love kombucha and like, fire cider and like these these other things that anyone can make in their house and then now we're like no you need this specific blend of adaptogens and then I talked to an herbalist <laughs> for that and and it's always stuck with me I talked to an herbalist who is like you can't willy-nilly give people yeah. these <laughs> these things they are powerful and they will have an effect but they might not have the right effect you want to know what you're putting in your body when you're using you know, herbs that have had real purpose and, and you want to work with someone who knows what they're doing and to, to get it to you. And and so it's so I love that you 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 do criticize this kind of vision of the world, but then you also come at it with such like love and appreciation, too. Yeah, because because you know what? I like to be the kind of like the bridging of like there is a reason and validity behind this. Just because like scientists told you that, you know, psychedelics were like, you know, because I think about that. I think about it a lot. Why is it? And I wrote about this in my psychedelics issue. I was very yeah. skeptical. I was like, I'm skeptical that they're pushing for deregulation while there are a big silo that I call it, like all these corporations now set to gain from the deregulation of psychedelics. So you're telling me that something that for what, half a century now, you've been telling me that is bad. Mm -hmm. Now that it's convenient to you guys where we have Peter Thiel trying to patent like guided trips, like fuck off, dude, like no. And so to me, it's more about like, guys, of course there is validity around adaptogens, but when it's being thrown like a marketing buzzword where it's like adaptogen this, adaptogen that, where I joke that it's not really functional if it doesn't come from Macron in France, like, <laughs> then it's BS, you know, and it's a yeah. detriment to the movement in the same way that cannabis has experienced that backlash with the term yeah. CBD, where it's become devoid of meaning. We did the same thing with organic. Yeah. I think to me, it's more about like, how do I do this a service in pro where it's like, I am trying to parse through the BS but because there is validity, I think that we also have to mention about the appropriation of where this is coming from. Like the fact that everybody's making Oaxaca like a fucking mezcal Sonoma. Nobody's talking about that. Instead, you're seeing like the like the brands be like, ooh, come stay at this luxury a thousand dollar new hotel in Oaxaca, whatever. And it's like, the, the fuck? A thousand dollars a night? And fucking, yeah. I'm sorry, what? Like, it, I don't know, it just like, and, and like seeing like brands be too comfortable using like 
ethnic and like aesthetics like I got blocked by Kendall Jenner I guess that's my claim to fame because I called her out I'm like uh is she brown facing why is she wearing braids why is she wearing a poncho why is she in a fucking like horse through agave field you're not fooling me dude like I know exactly what you're doing yeah and you know playing upon these aesthetics in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable that it's normalized right like that's not okay and I think that there are some people like Yola Jimenez from Yola Mezcal who are doing it in ways where like she's not even like having to hone in on like Mexican aesthetics that you know that's where she's from uh instead she's like using this rise in popularity of Mezcal to empower women in a region where women get always screwed over like screwed over there's a lot of femicides that are that to me is like that's how you do it yeah. And if someone can do it the same way that, you know, Tony's chocolate came out and said like, oh, yes, it's only one percentage of child slavery. That right. we use, but it's good because then we can point it out. And it's like, fuck you, dude. Like there's literally brands right now. There's a brand called Cuna de Piedra in Mexico, based in Monterrey. They work with indigenous communities that have used the cacao practices that spend thousands of years. Like if they can be like intentional about sourcing their shed, there's another one yeah. based in the U.S. called Sunhab. She works with the Bidi community in Costa Rica. Like if small brands with the like lesser resources and you can do it, then fuck you, dude, and your narrative that you're trying to do some like sort of service, you know, for the, the better men of the world. So <laughs> I don't know. I feel like not just to be like incendiary, but it's more about like, can we just have like a conversation where it's like, I get it. PR, dude, that's a huge thing. But just let me critical think. Yeah, for a bit and be like, uh, did we not make almond milk unsustainable? And you're trying to tell me that a hundred thousand different plant-based brands are gonna be how we get ourselves out of fucking extinction? I don't know, man. I would be a little skeptical. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Andrea, for for taking the time today to chat. This has been great. Thank you for thinking about me. And yeah, let me know when we can have another part two. I know we kind of like yeah. went all over the place, <laughs> but you know, it's a good chat. You know, I love I love when it flows, but thank you so much, Alicia. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Trust that you are also helping pave the way for people like me to also, you know, hone in their own space. So I appreciate you so much for that. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's edition of From the Desk of Alicia Kennedy. Read more at aliciakennedy.news or follow me on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, on Twitter at Alicia Kennedy. <laughs>